Uh, This morning we're going to be in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 4. And I want to begin this morning by making this claim. This claim that the Lord our God is mighty and worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth. Again, the Lord our God is mighty and worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth. This is the claim that I am submitting to us this morning. And as we look in this, this chapter of Joshua, I think we're going to see that this is true, that this claim is accurate and correct. But this morning, I'd like us to look at these verses. Uh, we're going to spend the first part of the message just walking through the verses themselves. I'm going to make a few comments, uh, but I believe the weight of the text comes near the end. And so uh, near the end, the last few verses is where we're going to focus the most of our attention. Uh, But of course, we're going to first look at the whole chapter and uh, study it and understand it together. So Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning, by the way. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. We're going to pause there. Um, This week's text picks up right in the middle of the story that we left off of last week, which is the crossing of the Jordan River, the crossing of the Jordan River. The people have finally made it into the promised land. Many years after they had left Egypt and then their fathers had not trusted in the Lord and sinned against God, and as a result, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years Now they are making their way into the land promised to them by God. And we read that when all the nations had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord commanded Joshua to take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and to ask each man to take a stone out of the midst of the Jordan and lay it at the place where they camped that night. So just as way of reminder, that most likely there are... uh, Over two million Israelites have entered the promised land that crossed the Jordan, and they were made up of 12 tribes, 12 tribes, and I have those up on the screen. The tribe of Asher, of Reuben, of Simeon, of Gad, of Judah, of Issachar, of Zebulun, of Joseph, of Manasseh, of Benjamin, of Dan, and of Naphtali. And so we see here 12 stones, 12 men, 12 tribes, but one nation, United together under one holy and mighty God. 
They were commanded to take these stones out of the river. And if you recall from last week, these 12 men had already been chosen in Joshua 3.12. So Joshua, he calls these men and he commands them to carry out the Lord's order. But he adds this additional note on why they are gathering the stones. That this may be a sign to you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And so these stones, they were a sign. They were a memorative token, a memorial forever for the people of Israel, reminding them of the mighty work that God had done in their midst that day. How many of you have ever visited a battlefield before? Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so when I was younger, uh, my, tra- my family traveled around the country a lot, and um, we camped and hiked. And my mom was a history teacher, um, uh, had a master's in, in social studies and history, and primarily uh, um, the American history. And so whenever we were traveling, we would almost always stop at some Revolutionary War or some Civil War battlefield and go through the battlefield. And we would drive around it, and, uh, you know, you go around the battlefield, whether it's like Gettysburg or Yorktown or uh, other places, and you're driving around, and you come, there's these stops, right? You know what I'm talking about? There's these stops in the battlefield that you stop at, and each one of these stops, there's usually some sort of plaque or a statue or a tower or a memorial, something with usually a plaque on it that says, at this spot, this event happened. Um, Or it's just a stone statue, and you're like, I don't know what this means. And so you have to look at your little book, or you have to pull up the the audio thing. It's probably on an app these days. But back then, you had like this number you could call, you know what I'm talking about, and like get the information. And the information would tell you, at this spot, this event happened, this battle happened. And so you can stand here in the spot, and you can imagine, um, you can imagine uh, the event happening. Because this spot, this statue, this tower memorialized it. This is what these stones are. Now, these stones probably did not have a plaque attached to them. That's why the fathers had to tell their children what it meant. But this is what these memorials were. And we see in the book of Joshua, we're going to see that the Israelites, in fact, erect seven stone memorials. We see it here at Gilgal. We see it in in chapter 7 over uh, Achan. We're going to see it in chapter 8, both one over the king of Ai and one when Joshua engraves a copy of the law. We're going to see it in chapter 10 uh, over the Amorite kings of Gibeon. We're going to see it in chapter 22 when there was peace made between the the tribes on the east and west side of the Jordan. Uh, And then we're going to see it in chapter 24 when the covenant was renewed at Shechem. But these memorials, they weren't just historical tokens or landmarks to guide the Israelites. No, they were a way to remind the Israelites of what had taken place at this spot so that they would not forget their mighty God and the works that he had accomplished in their midst. That's what these stones stood for. Continuing on in in chapter 4, verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan 
in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And so the scriptures record that the people do exactly as Joshua commanded. They took 12 stones from the river. They took 12 stones, one for each tribe, and they carried them over to the place where they lodged that night. Now, I have up here uh, a bunch of stones and uh, graciously uh, borrowed from the Nietzsche household. I think they got me the heaviest stones they had on their property uh, because uh, originally my plan was, well, I was going to have these stones and then I was going to actually build a memorial. But as I began lifting them, I realized that wasn't going to happen. I'd pass out here on stage. Um, Not really, but anyways, so it was perhaps a stone memorial like this. We don't know for sure, but we do know that 12 stones were pulled from the river and carried to the place where they lodged that night. If we read closely, verse 9 records an interesting note that many scholars aren't quite sure what to do with. Because what it says is that, And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. And so many wonder and ask, are these the same stones that were pulled out of the river? Are these different stones that were gathered and set up in the river? We're not, the, we're not really sure. The scriptures don't tell us for certain. But what we do know is that the priest remained in the river, the whole, riverbed the whole time. So as the nation is crossing, the priest carrying the ark remaining in the river. As the men go back in to gather the stones, the priest with the ark are remaining in the river, holding, carrying the presence of God as the presence of God is holding the water back. That's what we see in these verses. Continuing on in, in verse 10. And the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in all of him just as they stood in all of Moses all the days of his life. And the, and the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And so the, the writer uh, reminds us that the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe Manasseh that we looked at a few weeks ago, he reminds us that they crossed the river. Because if you recall from a couple weeks ago in, in, um, in, at the beginning of our study, and then uh, also back in Numbers 32, um, these were the tribes, the two and a half tribes that wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan, outside the promised land, because they believed that the land was better for their flocks. I apologize. And they go, and they ask Moses, and Moses is hesitant because he thinks that if they go, and they, if they don't come over the river with them, 
that the people will be discouraged. And so he asked that they send their fighting men over um, into the promised land. And so this is what is happening here. They're crossing over, and about 40,000 men from these tribes made the crossing. And then in verse 14, we, see, we read that the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. This was something that he had promised to do in chapter 3, verse 7. And the word exalt here means to honor or to distinguish. It's the same word used in 1 Chronicles 29, 25 and 2 Chronicles 1, 1 in reference to King Solomon. When the scriptures tell us that the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of Israel. And so Joshua here is exalted. He is made to be seen very great in the sight of all Israel. The Israelites knew he was their leader. They knew that he had replaced Moses, but it was at this point that after they crossed the Jordan River that they realized that the Lord was with Joshua, that the Lord was with them. And it says that they stood in awe, in wonder of him, just as they had of Moses. Joshua, he's their God-ordained leader, and he would continue to be so as they conquered the land of Canaan. And so Joshua is exalted, and then we read that the priests are commanded to come out of the river. And we see in verse 18 that when their very souls left the river, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks. You have to imagine, they step out of the river, and just like that, the water returns back. As soon as their souls left, or more importantly, as soon as the presence of God had left the riverbed, the waters rushed back in. And we see in this passage how God miraculously disrupts the natural creation order. He takes what he has created, the natural order, and he disrupts it in order that his people may cross. And then he miraculously returns it back to its previous state. And when I read this, (laughs) I can only be in awe of the power of our God. Because he is the Lord over all creation. He is sovereign over all creation. And just by his presence, he can make a raging, flooded river stop. And just by his command, he can make it return again. This is the God whom we serve. This is who our God is. How great is our God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's continue reading the last portion of this chapter, beginning in verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Scripture records here that the Israelites, they enter the promised land on the 10th day of the first month, which, by the way, is the day that the lambs were slaughtered for Passover. So in preparation for Passover, when they were in Egypt and continuing on, this was the day 
that the lambs were slaughtered in preparation. And I believe next week we're going to be looking at the Passover. Sometime next couple weeks we're going to be looking at the first Passover in the land. But they come, they cross the river, they encamped at Gilgal, east of the Jericho. And it was here that Joshua sets up these 12 stones. And as we focus our attention on these last few verses of Joshua 4, specifically verses 24, I want to come back to that claim that I made at the beginning of the message, that the Lord our God is mighty and worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth. How do I know that? How can I make such a claim? Because I know what these 12 stones mean. I may not be able to see them. I may not be able to touch them, but I know what they mean. The word says that the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan just as he dried up the waters of the Red Sea. This is what it means. And so Joshua in these verses, he's making a plea to the parents to not let their children forget the mighty works of the Lord because their parents had. Their parents had seen God's hand upon the Egyptians through the plagues. They saw God's hand in drying up the Red Sea for them to cross. They saw God's hand in the law he gave them to follow. They saw God's hand in the conquering of the enemies they faced. But when the time came for them to enter the promised land, their view of God suddenly became very small. It became very small. This is Pastor Kevin taught on a few weeks ago. It was a small view of God. They had forgotten that the hand of the Lord is mighty. They had forgotten that he could drive out their enemies and give them the land that he had promised. And so as a result, they wander in the wilderness until their generation died out because they had forgotten that the Lord is mighty and worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth. And so Joshua, he's making a it very clear to the parents who had just entered the promised land. Do not forget the Lord your God. Do not allow yourselves and your children to have a small view of God. And when your children ask in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know what the Lord has done. Why should they let them know? Verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We see two audiences in these verses, two messages that are given, one to the nations and one to the Israelites. For the nations, the Lord had dried up the Jordan in order that they may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and powerful, strong, Let's read one verse further into chapter 5. I'm going to steal a little bit of Pastor Kevin's thunder for next week. But chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the king of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. A couple weeks ago, we read in, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, what Rahab told the men, the two spies that she had hid. Verse 9, she said, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan 
to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. So Rahab tells the spies this, that their hearts had melted, and this was even before the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan. This was before he dried up the waters. Imagine, the people in the land, they know that the Israelites are on the other side of the river. They know that the Israelites are amassing on the other side of the river and that they have a military force and they have the power of their God behind them. But I'd like to think that the people thought they were safe for a little bit. I like to think that they were safe. Remember, the Jordan is at flood stage. I don't know about you, but I can't really imagine somebody crossing a flooded river on foot, let alone two million people crossing a flooded river on foot. And so I imagine that they thought they were safe, protected at least until the flooding died down, that they had time to prepare. But suddenly, in a moment, the river's dried up. Suddenly, in a moment, it's dried up, and perhaps what they thought was their last line of protection has suddenly vanished, and they were being invaded by the people of God. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them, and they knew that the hand of the Lord is mighty. By the work of God, by what he had done, they knew that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That's what the nations knew. For the Israelites... It was more than just knowing that the hand of the Lord is mighty. The stones were a reminder to fear the Lord their God forever. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to worship him with awe, to honor him with reverence and piety. To fear the Lord is to be devoted to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 2, we read that the Israelites will fear the Lord by keeping all his statutes and commandments. And in Psalm 128, the psalmist writes, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. You see, I think God has done this mighty work of stopping the Jordan, not only so that they can cross, but so that they may fear and honor the Lord forever. And not only should they fear and honor the Lord, but their children should fear and honor the Lord. This miracle is as much for the future generations of Israelites as it is for the current generation of Israelites. I believe this reminder is fortified further by what we read in Psalm chapter 78. Psalm chapter 78, beginning in verse 4. The psalmist writes, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. These verses in Psalm 78, particularly verses 6 and 7, have been the foundation for our children's ministry this year at Fellowship. Why should we invest so much into making sure the next generation knows 
and follows the Lord. Well, it's because of what we read in verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We should want our children and their children, our students and their students, to fear the Lord and not forget his mighty works. A question I'm constantly having to ask myself is how do our children, how do the next generation see God? What is their view of God? What is their view of God? Do they have a small view of God? Do they have a view of God in which God is just somebody that tells them the rules, that God is just somebody that they, they come and talk to on a Sunday and a Wednesday night and they put him back on the shelf, that God is just somebody that we turn to in times of trouble? What is their view of God? Is it a small view of God or is it a great view of God, a mighty view of God, that God is mighty and worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth? That's what these stones mean. That's what these stones mean. It was a reminder that the next generation needs to know who the Lord is and to be, remember who the Lord is. For the nations around Israel, they were a reminder of the mighty hand of the Lord. For Israel, they were a reminder to fear the Lord their God forever. And today, what do these stones mean for us? Well, let me go back to my initial claim. The Lord, our God, is mighty and worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth. This is what the stones represented for the people of Israel. And I believe this is what they represent for us today. Because if we agree with this claim, if we believe in this claim, then that changes everything for us, both for the world and for the church. How do I know that this claim is true? Because I have read this book. Because I have read and I have read the words. And I know that long after the Israelites crossed the Jordan, after God performed many more signs and wonders, after the people of God continued to forsake and forget the Lord their God, I know and I have read that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to rescue them. You see, I know that we all have sinned. We have forgotten and we have forsaken God since birth. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I know that the wages of our sin is death, that we deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity, spending eternity in hell. But I also know that God loves us. That he loves us enough that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to rescue us from our sins. And I know that Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth even though he was flesh and blood like us. I know that Jesus ministered on this earth, was arrested for crimes that he didn't commit, and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross to die a death that we deserve because we're the ones who do not fear and honor the Lord. We are the ones. And I know, oh, I know, that after three days, God raised him from the dead, and he is still alive today and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, intercessing on our behalf, offering salvation from our sins, eternity with God in heaven. If we only repent of our sins, confess Him as Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead and that He will forgive us of our sins. I know that this claim that the Lord our God is mighty and worthy of all honor 
and praise from all peoples of the earth is true because I know that the Lord has raised Jesus from the dead and that he is mighty to save, that he has forgiven me of my sins, that he has saved me. I know that to be true. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't save ourselves. But the Lord our God is mighty to save if we know and follow him, if we fear him with our whole lives. And so today I believe this passage challenges us to do two things. First, we need to tell the world that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And second, we as the church need to remember all the mighty things that the Lord has done so that we may fear the Lord our God forever. We need to tell the world We need to tell the world what God has done, the mighty things that he has done. We need to share it with all we come in contact with. If you tell me, I don't know what to tell them, this does. This records for us what God has done, what Jesus has done, what his Holy Spirit has done. This tells us the mighty works of God, and we have a responsibility as the church to go, to make disciples, to share the gospel, to share the mighty works of the Lord with all that we come in contact with. We need to tell the world that the hand of the Lord is mighty. I think the best way to do that is by sharing our own testimony. If we're a believer, our testimony is a testimony to the claim that I made earlier. Our testimony of our salvation is the truth of the gospel, and its truth adds truth to the claim that the Lord is mighty. Our testimony does that, and so sharing our testimony with others reading the word with them, sharing the word with them, building relationships with those outside of our family, our friends, relationships in the world in which we can share the love of Christ. Because I believe we have a responsibility to tell the world that the hand of the Lord is mighty. But I think not only do we need to tell the world, but we also need to remember the mighty things that God has done in his word and in our own lives, because yes, God is still doing mighty things today. Not only has he done mighty things through our salvation, but when he answers a prayer, he is mighty. When he doesn't answer a prayer, he is mighty. When we ask for healing and he heals, he is mighty. When we see our kids come to know and follow Jesus, he is mighty. When the Lord gives us help in sharing the gospel with somebody, he is mighty. When we encounter someone and we have the words to say and we're able to speak truth into their life, he is mighty. When we ask for his help, his wisdom, and he grants it to us, he is mighty. And we need to remember that the Lord is mighty. So I believe we do that. Maybe it's perhaps through a literal jar of stones. (laughs) You may not be able to get 12 massive stones to carry around, but maybe it's as simple, practical as having a jar, having a little uh, a bag of like river stones or something, and every time the Lord answers a prayer, every time you see the Lord work, you write on the stone the date and what happened. You drop it in the jar. Perhaps it's something like that. We remember what the Lord has done through the scriptures by reading and hearing the scriptures. We remember through the songs that we sing. A few weeks ago, Pastor Kevin and I uh, was visiting one of our church members who is in hospice, and um, we were near the end of our visit, 
And Kevin asks the individual who um, is very weak and not saying much at all if he would like to sing, How Great Thou Art. And this gentleman, at the top of his lungs, with more confidence than I have heard from him in months, saying every word to that verse and chorus of How Great Thou Art. Because for him, it was a reminder that the Lord is good. Perhaps it's through a prayer journal. Perhaps it's through actually taking and writing down our prayers and then writing down how the Lord has answered those prayers as a way to remember the Lord. But all of it is so that we may fear the Lord. We remember in order that we may fear him, that we may honor him, just as he called the Israelites to do. One final way that we do it, and I think the primary way that we do it as the church that we corporately remember the mighty works of the Lord is through the Lord's Supper. And I'd like to invite us to partake in that this morning. You know, I think the Lord's Supper is to us what the Passover was to the Israelites. It reminded them of all that God had done in their midst, starting with their release from captivity in Egypt For us, the Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's death on the cross when his body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus had made. But we also rejoice through the Lord's Supper in the promise of eternal life that we have in Christ's resurrection from the dead. As we approach the table this morning, Uh, This meal is for those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and followed him. And if that is you this morning, I invite you to partake in the bread and the juice with me. But this morning, if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord of your life, I invite you to trust in him today. To trust in him today. To turn from your sins and to follow Jesus. To confess him as Lord of your life. If the Holy Spirit is moving in you to trust in Jesus today, to make that decision today, and you want to talk about what that means, I invite you, after we partake in the meal, to come talk to myself, to come talk to Pastor Kevin, to Pastor Rob, to uh, Michael Nietzsche, one of our elders, um, or anybody else in the room, about what that means. For those of us who are believers in Christ Jesus, I think the scriptures are clear on how we should approach the table Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Are there sins in our life that we need to repent of this morning? Are we perhaps holding disdain for somebody in this church, in this body? Go, ask for forgiveness and restore that relationship with them here in a moment. Have you found yourself straying from the Lord, straying from his word? Repent and turn back to him this morning. Before we take the supper, I want to invite us to take a few moments to pray, to examine ourselves, and to make sure that we are right with God and with one another. Let's do that now.
Heavenly Father, we come before you now, seeking your face, knowing that you are mighty, that you are worthy of all honor and praise from all peoples of the earth. And Lord, in this time of partaking in this supper together, we remember the mighty works that you have done through the death of Jesus on the cross, through the, sh- the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And Lord, we praise you for that. And we rejoice in knowing that because of that, if we trust in you, if we give you our life, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and to call us the child of God. Lord, we have hope in that through the resurrection of Christ. This morning I ask that as we come to you, if there are sins in our life that we need to turn away from, that we need to repent from, that we need to ask forgiveness for, that you would forgive us, Lord, that we would call upon you to forgive us. I ask, Lord, that if there is disdain in our heart for somebody else in the congregation, that we would make that right, that we would see that relationship restored. And Lord, I pray if there are those here this morning who do not know you, who do not have a relationship with you, that today will be the day they trust in you for salvation, that they turn their life to you, that they know and follow you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to remember the mighty work that you have done through this event. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, every time that we partake in this meal together, we do it in remembrance of him, and we proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected to all who observe it. This morning, as the worship team comes at this time, I again return to that claim I began with, which is that God is mighty, and that he is worthy of all honor and praise by all peoples of the earth. This is what these stones signified this is what the lord wanted israel to remember do you believe in this claim this morning do you believe in this claim do you agree that it is true if you don't i want to invite you to believe in it today and follow jesus and if you do we have a responsibility to tell the world that god is mighty and to remember what he has done in order that we may fear and honor him daily